well, we've uh, got a, well, from my point of view, a right old Bible study tonight. Uh, we'll read the passage we're covering, and then I'll explain why I say that afterwards. Uh, find 1 Kings 17. This is, of course, the number 7 in uh, the Elijah series. 1 Kings 17. Glad to know that in six studies we've done 16 verses. So if you want to work out any averages, please do. Right. 1 Kings chapter 17, and uh, we're just going to read the section uh, from verse seven, uh, from verse 17 down to verse 24. So let's just read that now. You remember, you know, he's he's gone to the widow, and the Lord's providing for them. Blah blah blah. Now then, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sins remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her bosom and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother and Elijah said see your son lives and the woman said to Elijah now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth now there's two quite distinct sections uh, or angles that we're going to look at that from tonight and uh, the reason I say from my point of view what a talk is because the first half of this talk is really in a sense we've got to go somewhere where the mind of man can scarce conceive where it's going that will become clear in a short while and it's very difficult for me to know how to express what we've got to cover here so the first half of the talk is difficult for me purely from the point of view is how do you make something like this clear so that that's the first problem the second problem is that the second half of the talk uh, would certainly be considered I don't think by anyone here but probably by anyone else extremely controversial so from my point of view oh boy what a study anyway let's let's dive in the, the, the first half of this that we're going to look at is the fact that we've got here that the widow's son becomes ill and dies uh, you know, so Elijah has settled in, uh, she's kind of getting the idea that God is with him, everything seems to be going well, the Lord's providing for them all their needs day by day, and then the son gets ill and dies, which was certainly unexpected to say the least. Now her reaction, as we're going to see, is twofold. Immediately she blames God, and in so doing, blames Elijah because he is a servant of God. Let's see those two things. First of all, she blames God. Uh, you know, she talks about her sin being brought to remembrance and therefore her son dying. Now, this is a kind of an accusation against God, that God is being rotten to her. Now, this 
blaming God is something that you will find all over the place. And I would say that it's the final giveaway of the sinful nature. One of the ultimate signs that the human race is sinful is that we are prepared to blame God. And what we're talking about here is when people, and the woman does it, accuse God of himself being sinful and doing wrong. When bad things happen, God is blamed. Now if you think about it, God is the creator. We are the creatures of his creation. That is all. He is absolute in power, holiness and wisdom. And for we, as his creatures, to dare blame him for anything, to dare accuse him of anything, is the final blasphemy. For the created creatures to blame Almighty God and to seek to accuse him of wrongdoing in some ways. And you'll find that God gets blamed nowadays for just about anything. But of course the thing is this, the Bible says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. God is sinless. God is perfection. There is nothing wrong or imperfect about him. God does no wrong. And yet how easily each one of us can identify with this thing about times when in our hearts we've kind of grumbled at the Lord that he's done wrong. This is unfair. What's happened to me? This is the Lord's fault. Can you see? It's a final blasphemy. I mean, think in the world. I mean, the way that God gets blamed for things which are strictly our fault. Um, I mean, what you will find, and it is extraordinary, you can talk to unbelievers in a kind of an evangelistic situation, and uh, you'll find that their initial claim is they don't believe in God, it's a load of rubbish. So you carry on a bit more saying, no it's not, the Lord lives, blah blah blah. And you'll find that they then turn on this God they don't believe in. And then they start accusing him of things. Uh, I mean, for instance, you talk to most unbelievers about famine, and then introduce God. And what they'll do immediately, they'll turn on God and they'll, they'll, they'll kind of you know, say, well, I mean, how, how can you believe in a God of love? How can he be a God of love if there's famine? And there you've got an accusation against God. God is not love because, i.e., famine. And it could be a million different things. And there you have a knee-jerk accusation that God himself is to blame for the wrong things that happen. It's blasphemy. And it's the first reaction of her here. You know, I mean, think of it on the famine. Now, over the last few years, famine has increased. But I'll give you an interesting statistic. Every year, without fail, the world's harvest yield is more than enough to cope with the growth in population in the world in that year. And that is a statistical fact that never changes. Next year, there'll be more people to feed. But next year, there'll be more harvest than there is at the moment, but there'll be more than the extra people need. 
Now, why is there famine? Well, I'll tell you. It's because man will not distribute in a proper way. It's because of the whole economic setup, the greed of mankind. No one is dying of hunger because it's God's fault. People are dying of hunger because man is greedy. It is the fault, purely and simply, of the human race. This very moment, US Marines are heading to Ethiopia because the food aid that has been sent there is being stolen by warring factions. Can you see, at every point, you'll find that when God is blamed for things like that, it is always the fault of man. And what you've got is mankind trying to shift the blame away from himself and put it on to God. Do you remember Adam and Eve? As soon as they sinned, Eve ate the fruit, gave it to Adam, and he did. Now, what happened? First of all, Eve blamed the serpent. So she's, you know, the devil made me do it. That was the shift the blame away from her. Adam then blamed Eve. Oh, she, she gave it to me. But then, what Adam did, he said to the Lord, the woman whom you gave me, made me eat. He said, God, if you hadn't created her, this wouldn't have happened. And he tried to blame God for the sin of himself and Eve. So, can you see the point? The sinful nature will not, of its own, you know, kind of volition, come clean. The knee-jerk reaction of people is to shift the blame away from ourselves and then to push it onto God. Now then, having explained this thing about famine, for instance, you'll then find people chucking at you, well, I mean, if God was loving, he could intervene, couldn't he? You know, if you're saying that, well, it's the world's sin that makes it such a mess, why doesn't God intervene? If he was loving, he'd intervene, wouldn't he? But he says, there's a problem with that. And it's the fact that because God is love, he's given us free will. So they're still trying to say that, okay, you're saying that, right, okay, famine, it's because we're greedy, not God's fault. I concede that. But he's wrong not to intervene. You see, and immediately in there, accusing God. Well, of course, the answer is, he's given us free will. Now here, what has happened is that the widow's son dies. And immediately her reaction is that it's God doing something horrible to her. Now, the thing that we've got to home in on here, and we're now going to be plunging into absolute mystery. Because, of course, this woman didn't know what on earth was going on. Suddenly her son dies, and at a time like that, the question that comes is, why? And what I want to try and demonstrate to you is that very often, in times like this, the question, why, is one that cannot be answered. There are times when we just hit up against the mystery of the way God works, and there's no way we can fathom it, okay? Um, and here, her son died. Now, as we're going to see in this instance, later on, Elijah raises him from the dead. So, this particular instance, all is going to be well. But, of course, many people experience tragedy and really, you know, kind of <coughs> things happening and you think, this is terrible, why? And we try and seek an explanation for it and we just can't. There are many things that happen, whether it's to us or other people, 
there are many things that happen that, quite frankly, we really can't even comment on because we haven't got the foggiest idea and we don't understand enough. But our reaction very often, like her, is we want to blame. First reaction, we want to blame. Something bad happens and we either want to pin it on God, that's the real sinful nature part of us. But then on the other hand, sometimes, I mean most of the time we wouldn't do that. We're Christians, but you try and pin it on the devil. Oh, the devil's doing this, can you see? And that we want someone, a cut and dried answer to the problem. Now, let me illustrate this in a way I think everyone here can identify with. Let's just go back a few years when old Rog died. Now then, what are we to say about the fact that Roger Price, a man so faithful to the Lord, died of throat cancer? On the one hand, you can say, well, God took him. I agree. But why with throat cancer? That surely has all the marks that the devil took him. But then can the devil really decide when a faithful believer dies? Isn't that God's decision? So what I'm saying is that when you ask the question, why did Roger Price die? And why did he die of throat cancer? Then all I can say is this. I have not got the foggiest idea. And here's the point. Why should we be able to understand it? If God is God, if the judge of the earth will do right, if God is sovereign, if, if, if the earth is his and the fullness thereof, if he controls every atom in the universe, every microsecond of the day, why on earth should we think that we are going to be able to necessarily understand these sorts of things that happen? And here's where we've got to be so careful. There's a sense in which here we're seeing that we've just got to let God be God. And what we must be careful of is a reaction, a questioning, a kind of a reaction against it that actually ends up blaming God. Almost demanding we need to know why. And can you see, if we're demanding to know why, and yet God in his wisdom isn't showing us, in there lies an accusation that if God really loved us, he would show us. Can you see the point? We have a reluctance to simply accept that there are many, many things that happen that we do not understand, and we cannot even begin to fathom why. Go, um, move on a bit in the Old Testament, and find the book of Job. Let's have a quick, a quick dippy into good old Job, Now, first of all, find chapter 1. Chapter 1, Job has just lost all his children, all his cattle, his business. Suddenly, everything has gone down the tubes. He's faithfully following the Lord, probably reading his every day with Jesus. And one morning, he wakes up, he reads his every day with Jesus, he goes on his way <laughs> praising the Lord, and later on that day, word gets through to him that his cattle and his children have died in the most extraordinary of circumstances. Now let's read chapter 1 and verse 20. Well, let's read from verse 18. 
while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, these are the people breaking the news to Job, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Imagine a wind strong enough, just in this one house that they were in was blown down, it collapsed on them. Now that has all the hallmarks of something supernatural happen. Not even what you'd call a natural death, is it? Now, verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshipped. What a reaction! He turned to God in worship. Now look at this. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now listen to this. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, in a situation like that, what would our reaction be? Obviously, there'd be grief. Job was grieving. We don't here have a picture of a man who didn't love his children. We don't here have a picture of a man who was unaffected by what it destroyed him. His children are dead. But what we have is a man who worshipped God and who turned to the Lord and refused to demand an explanation. Now, in a similar situation, there's something, yeah, we, we grieve, that's absolutely right, but there's something else, isn't there, that wants to demand an explanation. Now, let me tell you exactly what that is. It is us, mere mortals and sinners at that, calling Almighty God to present himself before us and explain his actions to our satisfaction. Can you see? That is blasphemy because it is charging God with wrong. Now Job here, he did not have the foggiest idea what was happening behind the scenes. We do. We have the book that Moses wrote about him, but Job didn't have that book about him. He didn't have the foggiest idea what was going on, and yet he simply refused to demand understanding. He simply, he had to grieve, he accepted it, but he bowed down and he worshipped the Lord, and what he was saying is, the Lord has every right to do this. Because the Lord can do what he likes. And who am I to say that he's wrong? Go over to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Lovely, thanks. <coughs> and uh, if you find verse 15. Um, now, I'm, I'm actually going to quote this verse to you from the King James Version, because the King James Version gets it right, the version I use gets it wrong. But the King James Version says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What do other people, is there someone with NIV, darling, could you just read that in yours? Right, okay. So, same kind of thing. RSV completely gets it wrong. What a reaction. 
by this point in the story, the only thing Job has got left is his life. Well, his wife survived. She wasn't killed. But her advice to him was curse God and die. So, no... No great... He probably... He probably wished she wasn't left. <laughs> but she was. So, the, the only thing by now that Job has got left is his, his wife. But I, but I, I say no more. And <coughs> his life is all he's got. By now, even his health has gone. He is now covered top to bottom in sores because his health has gone too. The only thing he's got left, remember, his family is gone. His riches are gone. His business is gone. And not because there's anything wrong with all these things, nothing wrong with family, nothing wrong with riches, if God has given them to you, nothing wrong with business and possessions. Everything has gone, even his health. And his situation is that, you all know the phrase Job's comforters, his four friends who rally round him. And now the problem with these guys, because right at the end of the book, uh, God says to his four friends, you have not spoken of me what is right, as has Job. Now the point was, all this advice, all the input that they were giving to Job was all wrong. And you'll find, if you read through it, that what they were trying to do, they were trying to say, Job, this has happened because of this. Or another one has another theory, it's happened because of this. And then someone else comes in, no, 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 it's because of this. And they're saying, right, do this, 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 and this, and then everything will be okay. Now the point was, what was Job's concern? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job wasn't interested in easy answers. Job simply was willing to let God be God. And he didn't need to understand. And that is the thing to remember. Yeah, we read the book of Job, we know exactly what was happening. That, you know, Satan put a challenge out to God, you know, that everyone on the earth belonged to him, the whole world did. And God said, no it doesn't, my servant Job. And Satan said, no, he doesn't love you for yourself, he loves you because you've blessed him with this, that and the other. And God says, okay, right, take it away. Take it away from him. Then we'll see if he loves me and worships me for me or what I've given him. So the point is, Job uh, became the battleground in a kind of a war, spiritual warfare, between God and Satan. And God allowed it because he wanted to prove a point to Satan. And the point he wanted to prove to Satan was that in Job was someone who followed the Lord wholeheartedly for himself alone. So Satan was allowed by God to take away his family, his business, his possessions, allowed to take away his health. The one line that God drew is he says, Satan, you do not touch his life. And that's why Job survived. And all this was meted out by God for a much higher purpose. But the thing is, Job had no understanding of it at all. But because he was what the Bible calls a righteous man, because he was righteous in the Lord, a believer, a disciple, he knew the Lord. Therefore, he was willing to let God be God and to not question him. Uh, go over to chapter 42, because one of the other things that came out of this whole episode is that, yeah, primarily, God was getting an incredible victory over the demonic powers and over Satan. 
But at the same time, although Job was a, a, a completely faithful man, he followed the Lord, nevertheless, God wanted to go much deeper in Job himself. And one of the things, if you again read through Job some, we've got time to do it now, but you'll find that there was one glaring fault in, in, in his life. And he was, he was so self-righteous, was old Job. I mean, he was really faithful, but he was really self-righteous. You know, I mean, he was just a little, a, a little touch on the pompous side. And at the same time, God wanted to deal with that as well. Now, in Job 42, and we'll just read verse 3. Now, this is, um, you know, sort of like, you know, God is starting to reveal things to him. Now, look at this. He says, um, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. There is Job expressing that, that, that it was just all too big for him. There's no way he could begin to understand what God was doing. But look, look at verse 5. He said, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And what had happened here is that because Job had had everything taken away, God had done a tremendous work in him, and Job, as it were, came to a new place in knowing the Lord, uh, a fresh awareness of his own sinfulness, and a fresh awareness of the glory of God. So it really brought him on spiritually so much. But can you see the fact here that Job is saying, look, we can't understand all this. It's too wonderful for me. It's beyond my understanding. God is God, and I'm going to let him be God. And then, of course, the end of the story is that God restored, when the contest was over, God restored to him everything that he'd lost. Uh, go to Psalm 131. So, again, they're a happy ending, but uh, you can go through the lives of many faithful believers in the Bible, and uh, no such happy ending follows. They lose everything in this earth, and they never get it back. Why? Don't ask me. I'm saying, why should we think that we can understand everything? Let's read Psalm 131, and I love this psalm. This is King David. Now, understand what it is that he's expressing here. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. <clears throat> I do not occupy myself with things too great, and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a child quieted at its mother's breast, like a child that is quieted is my soul. You can see what he's saying there. He says, Lord, I ain't the foggiest idea what you're doing. I do not understand. Remember, one of the things King David went through is that his, his son, Absalom, who he loved so much, who he brought up to follow the Lord, Absalom ended up at leading a rebellion against his own father. Now, can you imagine anything more destroying than that? And yet, King David, what's he saying? I don't understand what God's doing. These things, they're too great and marvellous for me. I'm not going to try and ascend intellectually to get up there to understand what's going on. But what I am going to do is like a little baby who understands nothing, I'm just going to nestle in father's arms. Because I don't understand what's going on, but I know that Dad does. And all that matters to a little child, a little baby, is that Mum and Dad know what's going on. A little baby doesn't. Can you see here that what we're seeing is that we cannot expect to understand 
all the time. Remember, Paul the Apostle spoke about the peace of God which passes understanding. Because there are many times when we just don't understand and yet still we can have peace. And I know one of the things that used to be a tremendous problem for me was that when there were things going on that I didn't understand, it gave me a great sense of insecurity. I couldn't be happy if I didn't understand. And what the Lord eventually got through to me is that that was pure unbelief. That was a total failure to trust him and to let him be God. Because the point is sometimes a, a, a feeling of understanding about a situation helps you feel that maybe you're a bit in control of it. Now, there's nothing to remind you that you're not in control like things happening that you don't understand. And the test is, when that happens, are we just going to acknowledge that God is God and shall not the judge of all the earth do right and God can be trusted? How dare we question him? How dare we accuse him? So what we're saying is that for us as Christians, there are times when we hit up against total mystery. Why did Roger Price die of, lung can uh, of throat cancer? Why, why, why? Did God take him? Did the devil take him? But it can't be that the devil took him. Satan is not stronger than God. Did God take him? Well, obviously, but why through throat cancer? Surely that's, that's, I don't know. Can you see? Why should we understand in any way at all? Um, it's, it's wrong to question God. So, what does faith say? What does trust say when you don't understand what's happening, when it seems that God has promised us blessing and yet the exact opposite comes? And rather than God blessing us, it seems to be disaster after disaster. What does faith say? Faith says, so what? He knows what he's doing. He really does know what he's doing. Go to Romans 11 and uh, let's, let, let's see Paul actually tackling um, you know, sort of like the way we ought to respond to this area of things we just don't understand. I'm not now talking about people using this as an excuse to not understand. I mean, the Bible's there. There's a lot we can understand, and we must make sure that we get all the wisdom and understanding from the Word of God that we can. But I'm talking about when it's just too high for us. There's no way we can begin to penetrate the mystery. Now, Romans 11 and find verse 33. <coughs> now, the actual context of this um, is um, that what Paul has been dealing with here, and I'm not going to go into it, but just sort of set the context, he's been dealing here with the question of predestination and free will. And he's been talking about God's sovereign choice of Israel, and he's been talking about the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he's been saying things like, if God wants to raise up vessels unto wrath, He's free to do that. If he wants to have some people over there going against him, he's free to do that. And if he wants to have these people over here following him, he's free to do that and stuff like that. And then Paul's, he's kind of got an imaginary kind of, you know, person who's firing back at him. And, and Paul covers the thing about, well, okay, but where does that leave free will then? And Paul certainly believed in free will, but his answer to it was quite simply, who are you, O oh man, to question God? Is he? Because there comes a point, again, the sovereignty of God and free will, the Bible teaches both, there comes a point where you cannot begin to pierce that mystery. And that mystery must just be accepted. Now, look how Paul winds up his argument about predestination at this point. Verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom 
and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And can you see what Paul is saying there? He says, I don't know. But wouldn't there be something wrong with God if I did? Why should we expect to be able to understand everything? Why should we expect to be able to understand 90%? I mean, yeah, God's given us so much in the Word. There is so much for us to understand. And the Holy Spirit will reveal it to us. But the point is, there's so much more that we don't understand. And that we just have to accept. And we need to be very careful of this questioning God. This thing that when something happens that we don't understand, that our hearts will sneak in the idea that somehow God's being wrong. Lord, how could you do this to me? Now, when we react like that, we're accusing. We're hinting that God might have done something that's out of order. Well, God does not do anything out of order. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? So there we see that this woman, all right, immediately she starts to question the integrity of God. She starts to question the holiness of God. Now, you know, let me just say, how dare we? The judge of the earth will do right. The fact that we don't understand properly, and why should we, doesn't give us the right to go making accusations about God. I mean, we all know, don't we, that maybe you might kind of, you know, sort of like hear about a situation and you get you get one one percent of the truth. Now with one percent of the truth about a situation, you can twist it into anything and you can end up accusing anyone of anything. Now we would shrink back from doing that to each other. But it doesn't stop us doing it to the Lord, does it? Oh yeah, sure, we don't actually say, you know, oh, I want to talk to you, brother. And what I want to say is, isn't God wrong? You know, I mean, we're not as upfront about it as that, obviously, because we know full well we're going to sort of get corrected. But it's there in our hearts. We're a bit more subtle about it. But nevertheless, the fact that we've only got 1% of understanding, and yet even knowing that, we're still prepared to, 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 in our hearts, be casting aspersions on the Lord. That is the final giveaway of the sinfulness and the evil of our hearts. And it really came out in this woman here when her son dies. Now then, the next thing she did was she blamed Elijah. So she didn't just stop at, at blaming God. She says, what have you against me, O man of God? So, so she's convinced that God's got it in for her, but she's convinced that Elijah has got it in for her as well. Um, you know, so why does she blame Elijah? Well, it's a fairly simple principle, and Robert sums it up. If you're angry at God, you can't bash God. So you bash his people, is it? You can't bash God. You can't reach him. You can't get a fist into heaven, can you? So when someone is angry at God, they'll take it out on someone else who represents God. And as we saw last time, Elijah is the representative of the Lord in that situation. She was angry with God. She let Elijah have it as well. I mean, it is totally irrational behaviour. But this is the way, often, that, that our hearts go. Um, but note as well that, I mean, Elijah, he didn't give a, a theological ticking off or anything like that. Because after all, her son had died. He felt her pain. He really felt her pain. He didn't kind of, like, go correcting her. He knew that, you know, grief sometimes has to pour it out and anger and stuff like that. 
And it's important for us, no, we don't need to defend the Lord, and we don't need to defend ourselves if people are accusing God, and if people are accusing us, you know, stuff like that. We can afford to be, you know, to be kind of, uh, you know, cool about it. Um, I'll give you an example of the way that people, if they're angry at God, they bash us. Again, let's go back to an evangelistic type situation. Now, I mean, there have been many, many times when I've been talking to people about the Lord, and uh, say eventually the lake of fire right, comes up. Now, the thought that people can be eternally thrown into the lake of fire by God is, 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 is absolute affrontery to the world. Unbelievers, they find that as offensive as anything you could get. And the reason they find it so offensive is because they don't believe they deserve it. <laughs> of course, they do deserve it. But because they won't admit it, therefore they see this as a great affront to their dignity. And, oh, how can you believe in a God like that? But one of the things that I notice is that, obviously, I tell people about Lake of Fire because it's true. I mean, if I was walking along Beachy Head and uh, sort of, I saw a group of blind men, you know, sort of like walking down the path to the edge, I mean, I kind of feel duty-bound to mention something about the edge. You know, I mean, little point in saying, morning, yeah, enjoy your walk. And, uh, you know, because they turn around and say, well, morning to you as well, sir. You see, splash at the bottom. So, I mean, obviously, eventually, you've got to get round to the lake of fire because, I mean, it's a bit silly saying, Jesus can save you if you don't tell them what from. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, Jesus saves, and the unbeliever says, what, green shield stamps? You know, it's, it's no use saying Jesus saves unless you tell people what he saves from, or it makes no sense. Now, the lake of fire is a horrific thing. It is to God, and it is to me. And it's been brought about by sin, which isn't God's fault. But the point is, I've had unbelievers at that point in the process turn on me as if I like the idea of people going into the lake of fire and actually want them to. Do you see the way it works? Again, at the back of that, they're saying God is rotten. God doesn't want anyone to go to the lake of fire. You know, he sent Jesus so that the world shouldn't perish. But the world turns away from Jesus. So at the back of it, they're saying God is rotten. But because I'm there at that moment speaking in his name, they want to make me out to be some kind of sadist who can't wait for the day when I see all these unbelievers thrown into the lake of fire. Can you see the process? You can't bash God, so you bash the person who's there in his stead, as it were. And, uh, you know, so I mean, you know, I don't like the idea of the lake of fire, and neither do God. But it's, it's true. It's going to happen. And you'll find that people accuse you of all manner of things. It's because they're angry with God, and because they want to say that they think he is rotten. All right. So, therefore she has a go at Elijah and blames him. Now also, <coughs> the widow saw this as a connection between her sin, because she said, have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son? So the widow immediately thought, right, I mean, she, she knows she's a sinner, the Holy Spirit's convicting her, the Lord is working on her, and as we're going to see, she gets saved. But the point is that she then in her mind thinks, you know, sort of, I'm being punished for my sins. My son has died because I've been punished for my sins. What a rotten God. But the point is, that was not why he died at all. And I'll tell you why. Because she only had to wait a few minutes and he was going to be raised from the dead. It wasn't a punishment. But you see, that is the problem when you try to understand something that you can't understand. 
you by definition reach the wrong answer. Because the right answer is not there for you to reach. It is beyond you. And you must just trust the Lord in it. And there is this great danger of wanting simplistic answers to everything. You know, as if saying, well, what do you think about that? Expecting that, you know, we can get understanding about everything from the Lord. We can't. But if we put our own simplistic answers on these things, then the one thing that you can know is that you're going to get it wrong. And this woman concluded that her son died because God was punishing her for her sins. Now, whatever reason he died, we know that that was not the reason. She reached the wrong answer. And the problem with this getting simplistic answers, this refusal to just accept that you don't understand, you come up with simplistic answers, they are always wrong. The answers will always screw you up, and at the end of the day, it is always the Lord who will get maligned and accused of being wrong. Can you see? It's absolutely hopeless. And we need to get to the point where our need to read significance into everything is overcome. I mean, I think we all know that tendency, don't we? Something happens. Um, I mean, sort of Christians are probably the worst of any people, and I include myself, for everything that happens, trying to make it significant. Uh, because this has happened, God is saying that. Uh, because that has happened, God is saying this. Now, obviously, there are many occasions when through things happening, God speaks. I'm not saying that we can't understand anything, but I'm saying most we can't understand. And let me say as well that most things that happen to us, be they big or small, we are not going to understand them. And to try and read significance into every event, it's, it's really going to, you know, sort of like, screw us up, you'll blow a fuse. You're, you're getting into an area where your brain, your mind, is not big enough to even begin to comprehend. If we are supposed to know the significance of something, God will make it clear. If there's something that God wants us to understand, he'll show us. But in the areas where we don't understand, then we've just got to be able to let it go and leave it with the Lord and say, I don't understand, but why should I? I'm dust. Why should a speck of dust with an attitude problem think that it can understand the working of Almighty God? It can't. And so here, Elijah now is used by God to raise the child from the dead. And what we've got here <coughs> is the first example in the Bible of the dead being raised by someone else. Now there was one example prior to this, but it doesn't really count, it was different. Because Moses, after Moses died in the wilderness, we know from Jude that Moses was raised from the dead and taken into heaven. But that was by God. That was by God, and no one at the time knew it had happened because they were all looking for the body of Moses and couldn't find it. But here, we have the first instance of the dead being raised by a believer. And if you think about it, it's quite a long way in, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's sort of like 3,000 3, odd years gone by. And uh, I just at this point, draw your attention to something that I've said before, and in regards to miracles. If you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, what strikes you about miracles isn't how frequent they are, but how infrequent they are. It's interesting. Here we have the first instance of the dead being raised. And this incredible way Elijah did it, he took the boy upstairs to his own room, laying on the bed and lay on top of him. I mean, this boy is like his own son now. 
You know, I mean, Elijah has really become part of this family and the child is raised from the dead and then the woman, she says, now I know you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And, uh, you know, the widow is now thoroughly converted. She's seen the power of God. And, uh, you know, and, and I mean, we must pray for such signs and wonders. You know, because I mean, you know, I mean, we can't expect them before breakfast, but my goodness, we can expect them. My goodness, we can expect them. And we'll be back to that aspect of signs and wonders in a later study. Right, so that is kind of the, the, the first thing that comes out of the passage here. This thing, the willingness to not have to understand. Because if you have to understand everything, it's because you don't trust the Lord. But if you trust the Lord, then you don't need to understand. And you can take a position, Lord, if you want me to understand, I know that you'll show me. And if I end up not understanding, it's because it's too big for me, too wonderful for me. Right, I'll just leave it with you. And Lord, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Right, now then, the second thing. Let's, uh, let's go back. To, to Go back now to verse 8 in 1 Kings 17. And because um, originally, when God sent him to the widow, notice, the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath in Zidon, because I have commanded a widow to feed you there. Now there's something tremendously important there. Here, Elijah is staying with the widow in Zarephath, in Zidon. Right, now go back into chapter 16. And, uh, you know, some verses we read in the very first talk when we were doing the background. Uh, chapter 16, and... Uh, and this thing about Ahab, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nehab, Nebat, Ahab took for wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, uh, 1 Kings 16, verse 31 and 32. Uh, sorry, just verse 31. And if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now remember, one of the main offences amongst God's people at this time was the worship of Baal. They were into a false god. Now why? Because their king, Ahab, their leader, had married a Gentile. And this Gentile was a high priestess in this satanic cult. And so Baal worship was spreading, alright. Now then, her dad was the king. Where was her dad king of? Sidon. Where is Zarephath? Sidon. Where is Elijah? Elijah has now been led to the source of the corruption amongst God's people. You see, the source of the corruption amongst God's people. Jezebel came from Sidon. Elijah is now in Zidon. And what we see here is a picture of spiritual warfare. Elijah has been sent right into the heart of the territory where the problem originated from, from Zidon, infecting God's people in Israel and Judah because Jezebel had married the king of Israel. So he's gone straight to the source of corruption. And of course, what is the source of corruption in that sense in the world today? Obviously our sinful hearts, but it is Satan and the demonic powers. <coughs> A prophecy that I heard some time ago um, was this. I am going to fire you like an arrow into the heart of what Satan is doing in the churches. What's happened? 
Here in Israel, amongst God's people, there has been satanic infiltration of God's people. And it originated in Zidon. Elijah here is taking on the spiritual warfare aspect of the ministry that God has given him. And the ministry that God has given him is to bring Israel back to faithfulness to God. But in order to do that, Elijah has to first go to Zarephath in Zidon. First has to tackle the root of the problem, demonic infiltration. And today, for the churches to be free, there has got to be spiritual warfare. Because remember, here at the time of Elijah, Israel in a right old state, God's people. It's a picture of the churches today. And you'll remember in the demonology series, we saw that Satan and his principality and powers demons, um, you know, sort of like there's the ones on what I called personal demonization detachment. They're the ones that get inside you, all right? But the principalities and powers, they're the ones who they manipulate and control people via the sinful nature through wrong thinking, through deception, through lies. And of course, we all know from experience, because we can all look back on times when it's happened to us, we can all look back on times when we have been manipulated as individuals by the principalities and powers because we acted on ideas that they got into our heads that were wrong. But those ideas always pander to something in the sinful nature at the time. So the point is, Christians, you and I, we are not immune from this interference, this manipulation through the principalities and powers. They can do it to us as well. And my goodness, have they done it to the churches today. Now, I want to put this in a way that you've probably not heard before, and it's very stark way, and you've got to decide whether or not you agree with it. You might think, you know, talking rubbish again. But at least hear the way that I want to put it. Now then, in regards to the church, because the issue in the time of Elijah was who was the Lord? Was it the God of Israel? Was he having the final say? Or was it Baal? Was he having the final say? And uh, we're certainly going to see as we progress through this, it wasn't the Lord God of Israel who was getting the final say. Now, let me put a question to you. Who is the rightful Lord of the church? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of his body, the church. Jesus is the rightful Lord of his church on earth. And no Christian would argue with that. Everyone, every true believer would say absolutely right. But I've got to say something else. Jesus is indeed the rightful Lord of his church. But what I'm going to say now is that Jesus is not the actual Lord of his church. And there is a difference. His word the Word of God, by and large, amongst Christians, is not considered to be final. Is it? Christians, by and large, feel free to pick and choose amongst God's Word as it suits them, discarding the bits that they don't like. Now then, let me give you a picture. Let's take, well, indeed, an ancient king, you know, one like Ahab, but he might be a goodie, whatever, but a king who makes an edict. So the king decides, I, I'm the law in this land, and I say this, here is an edict, here is a law, alright? So he works out his edict. But of course very few kings were responsible for actually getting their edict 
edicts out to the country. <coughs> so what this king does, he gives it to his second in command. Now the job of the second in, you know, in command is to do all the, he's got to make sure that the edict is worded in the way that it's clear and everyone understands it, and then he's responsible for getting that edict, that law out to everyone in the country so everyone knows what's required of them, alright? Only this particular second in command, he, he's reading through the edict, he knows what the king wants, but he scratches his head, he says, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not happy about that bit. And I certainly know that the people aren't going to be. So what he does is he rewrites it and he cuts out the bit that he doesn't like and then proclaims it. So the king has said, this is the edict. He gives it to the second in command. The second in command goes over it, censors it, <laughs> takes out the bits he doesn't like and the bits that he thinks the people won't like and then publishes it and proclaims it. Now then, here is the point. The rightful authority in that nation is the king. But the actual authority in that nation is the second in command who can doctor the edicts before they're published, before they're proclaimed. Do you see the point? The king is the rightful authority, but the second in command, because he feels free to undermine the king's authority, he is the actual authority. And so people end up doing not primarily what the king says, they've ended up doing what the second in command says, because he is um, using or exercising a veto over the king's demands. Now, what I want to say is that in Christianity today, Satan is exercising a veto on the Word of God. And that is why I say that whereas Jesus is the rightful Lord of the Church, I don't see him today as the actual Lord of the Church. Because the principalities and powers are exercising a veto in the Kingdom of God this brought about because of the manipulation of believers' minds because there are things in the Word of God that are offensive to them and that they don't want. So because they're willing to cut them out, the principalities and powers can exercise a veto. So what we have is this. Satan is allowing the church to go so far, but no further. And that is what's happening today. Um, let me give you an example. I mean, take the world of espionage, particularly the Cold War. You know, I mean, especially the CIA versus... There's a brilliant, brilliant uh, sort of series of programs on about three months ago called the CIA. It was absolutely fascinating and in-depth, you know, and it really went into the conflict, you know, the CIA against the KGB and all the espionage thing. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, the, the whole thing came out about double agents. And it's absolutely fascinating because there were quite a few times when... For instance, the KGB had a double agent in the CIA and, and they were working him, alright? So that the, the CIA thought this bloke is one of our boys. But he wasn't, he was one of their boys and they didn't realise it. But there were instances as well when the KGB had a double agent in the CIA but the, dub, the agent was a double-double agent for the CIA. And what was happening, the agent was absolutely theirs, he was a CIA man. But he was leaking true secrets to the KGB, who therefore thought that he was a double agent and on their side. But the truth is he wasn't. And what the CIA were doing is that they were leaking genuine secrets, but not very important ones, 
alright, to the KGB. Because this guy, being accepted by the KGB as a double agent, was getting far more important secrets from the KGB and taking them back to Washington. Now, the tactic is, in espionage, that the spy master is willing to give a certain amount away if the result of it is that he's getting a heck of a lot more back. Can you see the tactic there? You allow the enemy, and remember as far as Satan's concerned, we are the enemy, you allow your enemy to make so much progress as long as the progress he's making is in the long run going to be paying you back even more. So, Washington let certain classified information go to the KGB that didn't matter very much because it was getting far more important classified information back from the KGB. Or think of it like a chess game. A tactic, I mean a chess player, you've got to be good to be doing this. But if if it means winning the game, a good chess player will even sacrifice his queen. Now, when I play chess, my queen is usually gone in five or six moves, and not because I sacrificed it either, because I totally missed what my opponent was doing. But a good chess player will sacrifice even his queen if it is luring his opponent into a position where he can then take the match. So, what we're seeing here is the principle that sometimes you can allow your adversary to go so far but no further and the victory is entirely yours because you are the one manipulating him and even though he thinks he's making some progress the point is you're the one who draws the line so that he stops dead at a certain point and today Satan is letting Christians go so far but no further but no further. There are always things that Satan can stop and things that he can't stop. And there are times in the church where he has to let what he can't stop keep going. But as long as he can bring it to a halt when he wants to. And I'll tell you, the thing that he has brought to a halt today and the thing that he wants to prevent happening more than anything else is the emergence of biblically-based churches. And you will find across Christendom that virtually the one thing that unites believers today is that they don't want biblical churches. Now, I see the manipulation of Satan in that. And that is why I'm saying that, yeah, who is, act who is the rightful Lord of the church? Jesus. But who is the actual Lord of the church? What I'm saying is it's Satan because he's pulling the strings. Now let me emphasize, I'm not now saying that all Christians have got demons. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that Satan is pulling the strings in the churches. And he's doing it by preventing and encouraging and manipulating believers into not going the whole hog with the teaching of the Bible. Alright, so the point is much of what's going on in churches today is of the Lord, much of it. But there's that final 20-10% that the Lord wants that Satan has got an absolute lock on. And that is where the spiritual warfare must be done. Um, I think I've shared this uh, before here, but I'll do it again. Um, some years ago in Suffolk, it was the time <coughs> when I found myself 
coming to these conclusions. And what was bringing me to these conclusions was the study of the Word of God, ultimately, because, I mean, you read the Word of God and it's all there, and then you look at the churches, are they doing it? No. And so you encourage believers to do it, and you find that they're as vehemently against you as unbelievers are. And you think, well, hang on, I mean, what sense can I make of this? That What the Bible teaches is clear. People don't want it. It's not being done. And so, obviously, logically, the only conclusion that one can come to based on the teaching of the Bible, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he warns them about the strongholds in their minds, and you've got to break them down with prayer and with truth. And I thought, yeah, this is what's happening. I was finding strongholds in my mind being bashed all over the place as God was dealing with me or my wrong fixed ideas about this, that and the other, well, I was convinced they were biblical, when the stronghold was broken, I thought, crikey, how on earth could I have made the Bible say that? Can you see what I mean? So this was the conclusion I was coming to. Now, around, over the period of those months and that, a particular time came in it. <coughs> Nothing like this has ever happened to me before, so don't get the wrong idea of me. Um, but I, I found that, that, that for quite a long time, every morning, I was up in real intercession at five o'clock every morning. And it didn't matter what time I went to bed, it didn't matter what my routine was, it didn't matter what my itinerary was, every morning the Lord woke me up at five o'clock and I woke up really interceding and I'd go downstairs and I would just have hours in prayer. Now, the reason I say don't get me wrong is because I have not been able to do that since. I am no intercessor, but boy, I went through a time in my life where I was an intercessor. Because obviously it was the Lord doing it through me. I mean, maybe it'll come back one day, I don't know. But anyway, that was going on. And I've, I've never known prayer like it. You know, I'm, I'm speaking for myself personally. Many believers know it as a normal part of their life. I don't. It was quite exceptional for me at that time. But such was the burden that I had concerning all this. And I was really, really praying away. And it was... It, you know, it was the winter months as well, and I remember one morning, it would have been about half five, you know, I'd have been going at some for about half hour, and it was pitch black outside, half five in the morning, and really cold, in the middle of nowhere in Suffolk, little farmhouse, you know, sort of false nine gales were not stopped by our windows, do you know what I mean? It was cold in there, and we had a little, you know, coal burning stove, and, and I'd be draped, literally draped over. You know, I'd be sort of like, have a chair, and I'd be slumped over the stove for the heat, with my arms going round the back of the, you know, the, the chimney bit and that, and that's how I used to pray. So it was so blooming cold, you know, I mean, I'd have died of hypothermia if I'd have been anywhere else in the house praying like that. And that's what I was doing. And uh, that, that particular morning, I really found myself struggling with, with this subject. And what was going through my mind was, <laughs> no, you know, I really wanted to back off. I really didn't want to have to be responsible for saying things like this to people. And, uh, you know, I was finding it a bit, it, it, it was too controversial for me, let me put it like that. And so I was busy thinking, that must be wrong, must be wrong. And that, that's, that's what I was struggling with. And I was, I was really doubting it, knowing what the Bible says, but still doubting it. And I was praying this through. And it's like, you know when you've got a jumper on and it feels like you've got it on the wrong way round? I was just praying, I thought, yeah. Yeah, it's on the wrong way round, you see. So I stopped praying, and I took my jumper off, and I turned it back on, and the right way round, or so I thought, and I sort of went back to prayer. And I thought, oh no, now I have got it on the wrong way round, and, and it was on the right way round, now I put it on the wrong way round. So I took it off again, and, uh, you know, put it on the right way round. I went back to prayer, and what, what happened next? And this is one of the very few occasions when I believe I heard God's voice audibly. Now, whether anyone else would have done, I do not know. There wasn't anyone there for me to ask, but I heard the voice of the Lord. And he said, there you are, 
you were right the first time. And I knew exactly what he was saying to me. He said, don't doubt. Don't doubt. You know, my jumper felt uncomfortable on me, but it was the right way round. Can you see? And, and, and although this was getting uncomfortable for me, saying, it's right, it's what the Bible says. And that really encouraged me in it. Now, very soon after that, within days, uh, something quite remarkable happened. And I've never known anything like this to happen. It never happened before, and it's never happened to me since. But uh, a few days later, a girl who was in the fellowship up there, she came to see me one evening, and she said, I've got something for you. And uh, what she had, she'd been out walking, one, you know, sort of the night before, and I think she went to a public phone box to make a phone call. She went in the phone box, and there was a piece of paper on the floor, in the phone box, all folded up very, very neatly. And, uh, you know, sort of like being a kind of a tidy sort of person, she picked it up so she could throw it away when she got home. And, uh, but she opened it out of curiosity. And that piece of paper was the torn out page of a Bible. And the page contained part of the prophet Jeremiah, and there was a particular verse underlined on that page. Now go to Jeremiah chapter 50, because that was the page it was. Jeremiah chapter 50. Mm. Jeremiah chapter 50 and uh, just just stick your hand on verse 33 I'll just explain the background of Jeremiah Jeremiah was uh, kind of like raised up at a time when Israel was in real bondage to Babylon they'd been carted off into captivity you know blah 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 now if you sort of like go to any Bible textbook any sort of biblical scholar, they'll tell you that the, the imagery of the Babylonians was that Babylon was a picture of, of man without God, but with his religious system. So it was always a picture of God's people being captured by the system of the world. And in Revelation, you've got Babylon, the great harlot, blah, blah, blah. But that's basically, Babylon represented the power of man in himself, as opposed to the power of God. But with that power comes a religious thing, because man is a religious animal, and religion is all over the place. And Babylon represented religion that excluded God, all right? And, uh, you know, so Jeremiah was writing into that situation. Now, let's read verse 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refused to let them go. And it was the Babylonians who got them. A picture of God's people being held in bondage by the world's religious system. And that verse was underlined on this piece of paper. And I thought, right, okay, I've got to put these silly doubts to one side and get on with this. Now, so there you have it, the spiritual warfare that is needed today. The people of Israel and Judah are held captive, and their captors will not let them go. The principalities and powers have got strongholds in the churches, and it's only prayer that is going to break them. Now, let me say that what I've just said, or taught, in this second half, is not because of those two bits of revelatory happening. I believed it before those things happened. But I needed those two little things just to encourage me on my way. So I want to emphasize that. I don't believe what I'm now saying because those two things happened. 
I believed it before they happened, but they were just a, 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 a very encouraging, confirmatory thing to have happened. And that was important. And so therefore, prayer is part of what's needed in order for biblical churches to be raised up. Because the principalities and powers have a hold amongst God's people. And it's only the prayer and the truth of the word of God that is going to set them free. Remember, at the time of Elijah, Israel was being unfaithful to God because they were doing Baal worship. Where did it come from? Zidon, through Jezebel. Where is Elijah? He's gone to Zarephath in Zidon. Can you see? It's the spiritual warfare must come first. That is the picture. And uh, just go to Ephesians and uh, just see the bit where Paul talks about this spiritual warfare. There's one or two things that are good to know in, in, in this context. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, start reading from verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. And he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now notice wiles there. Wily. Deception. You know, we talk about a wily old fox, don't we? You know, cunning. And that is the end. Satan does it through cunning. Cunning deceptions that pander to your sinful nature, so you turn a blind eye to the word of God. That is exactly how the principalities and powers manipulate our minds and gain strongholds. Uh, let's keep reading to verse, um, to verse 12. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers against the world rulers of this present darkness against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. They're the titles that Paul gives to the demons that go for the mind. You know, not the personal demonization detachment ones that get inside you, but the ones that are in the air that work on people's minds. And uh, go down to 17, the second half of verse 17, and uh, he's going take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you'll find that all the armour here is all defensive. Armour is defensive. And the only thing that seems to be offensive here is the sword of the spirit. But the actual Greek word here is a dagger. And uh, the Romans, they had a little dagger. It wasn't their sword, it was quite different. And the idea was that if they lost their sword and ended up in arm-to-arm -arm combat, they had the dagger that they could pull out and... So it was a defensive. You didn't attack with a little dagger. You attacked with your sword. But this, in the Greek, is a little dagger. It's a defensive thing. And of course, the point is that that is the word of God. That dagger, that final... If Satan gets through on any other level, then we've got this dagger to stab him with. And that dagger is the word of God. And biblical living is our defense posture. Because all the time, Satan is seeking to distract us, He's seeking to get us to go off, off the rails a little bit, onto irrelevant and harmful tangents, all over the place. And he will, he'll kick us around all over the place. And all designed to distract us from living according to the word of God. Because that is what Satan fears above all else. The word of God being thrown at him in the name of Jesus. That is what Satan cannot handle. So therefore, we've got to be in continuous defense mode of Satan's deceptions, and we've got to make sure that we've got that armor on and that we really do stick to what the Bible says. Now, I want to end here with, uh, if you go to 1 Samuel, find the first book of Samuel, I want to just end by 
demonstrating something that needs demonstrating very much today. You will find, I mean, you know, I could, I, you know, I could give you one of a hundred examples, all right, but let's take the issue of what the Bible says about leadership. You know, sort of leadership is male, all right? Male elders leading the churches, all right, plural. Plurality of male elders. Now, obviously, many, many churches just take no notice. You know, I mean, there's all these different systems they've got, and they're anything but a co-equal plurality of male elders. But what you'll find often, if you debate this with people who practice something different, to what the Bible teaches. At rock bottom, you'll, you'll, you'll tend to find there's an argument of, oh, well, what does it matter really? What does it matter really? You see, let's not worry about it. You know, we'll just all get together. And what does it matter right here and there? What does the minutiae of the Bible's teaching matter? So that what you've got there is you there have Christians deciding on the relative importance of various teachings in the Bible. You know, this one, oh, that's important, untouchable. That one, uh, no, well, I'm hardly vital. And this one, oh, I don't really don't see what it matters. You see what I mean? That kind of attitude. Now then, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8. Verse. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8. Now, this point in history, Samuel has anointed Saul to be king of Israel. So, Israel's first king, all right. And uh, chapter 10 are various instructions that Samuel is giving Saul. And obviously, Saul knew full well that Samuel was a prophet. So, Saul is receiving the word of the Lord, the word of God. Now then, in verse 8, uh, let's, let's just read this. Um, and you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, among the instructions here, Samuel says, when you've done this, that and the other, blah, 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 then go to Gilgal, all right? Now, I might be a bit late, you know, it might take me a week before I'm there, but uh, you go there, you wait for me, because there are sacrifices to be made which only a prophet or a priest could do, all right? So there are sacrifices to be made, so, so I'll tell you what, when you get there, you wait for me, and when I get there, I'll show you what to do, all right? Now go over to chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and find verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Right, reading from verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal, and I have not entreated the favour of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So, what he's saying is, I know, I know that God's word for me was to wait for Samuel. But, uh, you know, he looks at the situation, well, Samuel's late, there's going to be a battle with the Philistines. Can't go into battle without the blessing of the Lord. Right, therefore, I'll do the burnt offering. 
doesn't matter what Samuel said, the Lord will understand. That was Saul's attitude. Now look at this. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And of course, David took over from King Saul. Now, let me ask you a question. Did it matter to the Lord? Yeah, it did. It did. We're talking about the Lord God Almighty who wastes nothing, and that's including words. God does not give unnecessary teaching. What God says, he expects to be obeyed. It is there for a reason. And what Saul did here, he took it on himself to say, well, I know what God's word is, but in my judgment, there is something here that overrides it. I know better than God's word. And I'll bet he thought that God was leading him as well. Well, was it a light thing to God? No, it wasn't. God took the kingdom away from Saul. And I'll tell you why. Because if Saul was willing to disobey that, he would have been willing to disobey everyone. The moment you... Sorry, the moment he went against that, he'd have been prepared to go against anything. The moment you start picking and choosing out of God's word what you're willing to obey and what you're not willing to obey, what you're willing to accept and what you want to get rid of, the moment you do that then it's the beginning of just a rebellion against God that can go on for the rest of your life. All the time justifying it as being God's will. Take, you know, the whole women leadership thing today. Oh, well, the Spirit's leading. Well, what about the Word of God? Oh, yes, but the Spirit is lit. We know better than God. And what does it matter anyway? It's not very important, they say. I don't believe there's anything unimportant in God's Word. <laughs> Can you see the point? So, what I'm saying is that Satan is the actual lord of the church because he has got, he has deceived believers into picking and choosing and Satan is preventing God's people going the whole hog. They're going some of the way and that's great but Satan has got the brakes on so that the churches are not going to go completely where God wants them to go and I'll tell you what that final phase is, it's biblical churches and there's got to be prayer that the minds of believers are released from those demonic strongholds um, you know that Satan has got going in the church today and here we see it is not a small thing to rewrite the Bible <laughs> you know or to say well I mean I know what God said but I mean what does it matter it's not important it is important what God says and we better stick to it or we might just find ourselves you know I mean not to the same extent as Saul he was a king the first king so obviously God's discipline on him was really 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 Monty Python foot you know, but I mean, let me assure you that if we take it on ourselves to, to judge the Bible and to judge bits here and there wrong and not for us, my goodness, let us expect that God sorts us out. And I hope he does. And I hope if I ever start going against the Bible, knowingly, that God will sort me out and keep me on the straight and narrow. Because I want to be part of the answer. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be among those arrows going straight to the heart of what Satan is doing in the churches. I don't want to be part of what Satan is doing in the churches. Can you see what I mean? So, oh boy, what a study. I think I'll leave it there.